I would encourage you, if you would, to take your Bible and turn with me in it to the second chapter of the book of Acts. We're going to be looking at the last few verses in that chapter, verses 42 through 47 of Acts chapter 2. As I indicated last time, the book of Acts is the inspired account of the early years of the New Covenant Christian Church following the resurrection and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as the title of the book itself suggests, the book of Acts is the Acts of the Apostles, but really more appropriately, it is a record of the ongoing acts of the risen, exalted Lord of glory, Jesus Christ. And you'll notice in this particular context it is at the climax of Peter's great sermon on the day of Pentecost that this great crowd which had been listening to him proclaim Jesus as the Messiah, the Christ of God, that they are cut to heart. And the realization begins to dawn upon them that they have crucified the Lord of glory, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And they begin to cry out to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? And we read in verse 38 that Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And extraordinarily, the response was that some 3,000 souls on this occasion turned to the Lord and were baptized. What a remarkable day that must have been in the history of redemption as that great multitude confessed their allegiance to a crucified but now risen and ascended Savior. And these closing verses of chapter 2 preserve for us this picture, this snapshot, if you please, of what the early church looked like. It is indeed a word picture of the early church, which underscores for us these features of the New Covenant Church that I and others have identified as the ordinary means of grace. And in these verses, we are told that about the 3,000 and the others who are now included in the fellowship of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So hear the word of God, beginning with verse 42 of Acts chapter 2. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe or fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. 
And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. All flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and the flower thereof falls away, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Would you pray with me and for me in the ministry of the word? Oh, Holy Father, we bow in your presence, and we thank you for the privilege that is ours once again of holding in our hands your holy and infallible word, having it read in our hearing, and then sitting under the ministry thereof. And Father, we sense and feel our own need, and so we cry out to you for the gracious assistance of the Holy Spirit, of whom we heard so much this morning. We ask that he would come powerfully, that he would quicken our minds and our hearts, that we may hear your word, and that you would be pleased to work in our hearts and to conform us to it, that we may better reflect the Savior whom we profess. We ask these things in his blessed name. Amen. One of the great questions facing the Christian church today is this. What should a Christian church look like in this present day setting? What should be the characteristics and practice of a Christian church in the 21st century? What answer do you suppose you would offer to that question were it put to you? What principles or guidelines would you use to formulate or draft your answer to that question? Well, to be sure, it is an important question. After all, we no longer live in the 20th century, far less in the 19th century, and far less more in the 16th century that Calvin characterized as the revival of the gospel. We don't live then, but we live now. What should the Christian church look like in the 21st century? And what principles or guidelines should guide or direct our thoughts as we seek to wrestle with that vital question? Well, in these verses that we're going to look at this evening, Luke sets before us the very first and the very revealing picture of the early Christian church with respect to this question. What Luke is reproducing for us here is something that I find quite compelling and therefore significant for us today. This is what this spirit-filled, large, multinational church, mostly newly converted megachurch, looked like initially in Jerusalem. The great reformer John Calvin, he wrote in his commentary on the book of Acts, with respect to this particular passage, he says, do we seek the church of Christ? He says, the image thereof is lively depainted and set forth to us in this place. Now, Calvin is writing 
some 16 centuries after this occasion, and we are nearer to Calvin than he was to the apostles. Do we seek the church of Christ? The image thereof, he says, is lively depainted and set forth for us in this place. So let's look together at this picture of the new covenant church of Jesus Christ. This is what that spirit-filled, multinational, mostly newly converted people of the mega church looked like in this to the own-looking world. Now there are a number of things that we're told about the church here that portrays for us in words a picture that shows us what the Christian church looked like. We read, you'll notice, they devoted themselves in particular to a number of things. To the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and literally to the prayers. Now, please carefully note the word that defines or describes what they did here together. They devoted themselves. They were a people for whom belonging to the church of Jesus Christ was everything to them. Belonging to the church of Jesus Christ wasn't some side hobby for them. It wasn't something to which they gave occasional indulgence. It wasn't something that they did by fits or starts or intermittently or sporadically. It was something in which they engaged themselves continually, not simply when the prevailing mood moved them or suited them or they were coerced to do so. They devoted themselves. Now Luke could have foraged, he could have scoured the language of the day and not have found a stronger verb to convey the heart of allegiance commitment and consecration of these new believers to the church of Jesus Christ. They devoted themselves. No one had the coats. No one had the prod. No one had the conjole or urge them to give their lives to the service of worship and ministry. No, the heartbeat of their whole existence, described for us by Luke, was focused and centered upon attachment to and involvement in the church of Jesus Christ. I don't know of anything by way of application that ought to arouse or challenge us more at the very outset of this particular passage. Unlike what we read here, we live in the day when Many professing Christians sadly view church life as something to consider when the mood grips them or when they have the inclination that stimulates them to do so. You see, here is a realistic picture of a baptized people who are devoted. This is actually a worship word that Luke pens here. It expresses the determination of a continual steadfastness to preserve in and close adherence to a pattern of faithfulness, hence the meaning of the noun form of this word, perseverance. Well, what was it in particular to which they devoted 
themselves. Well, notice, first of all, significantly, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. <clears throat> they were, therefore, a learning church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. In his upper room discourse in John chapter 16, our Lord Jesus imparted these words to his disciples. He says, I have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you, that is the apostles, into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority. And whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Jesus is entrusting to his apostles the deposit of biblical revealed truth. When the spirit of truth comes, he will divinely breathe through you and equip and enable you to be the heralds, the instructors, the teachers concerning myself. And the first thing we're told then regarding this multitude of this multinational company of believing men and women, it is that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And the question that most naturally follows then is, what was the apostles' teaching in essence? What was the essence of their teaching? Well, in a word, it was Jesus Christ. It was Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was the sum and substance and glory of the apostolic teaching. Bear in mind now, after the resurrection, Jesus is found on the road to Emmaus. Again, Luke is, is speaking to us here from the 24th chapter of his gospel. And Jesus is opening the minds of those two disciples along the road to Emmaus, Cleophas and his friend, to all the scriptures. And we're, we read there that he interpreted to them all the, in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. It must have been the most astonishing tutorial ever heard under heaven. Has these men, along with the apostles, sat under the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ some 40 days following his resurrection, as he opened to them the scriptures and declared to them, this, this, this speaks of me. That points to me. This speaks of me. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, we read that he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. You can almost imagine with every sentence that fell from the lips of the Savior, lights were flashing on and off in the apostles' minds. I never saw that before. I never understood. Would you believe it? I read that, but I had no idea it was speaking to us of Christ. It's all about him. There he is promised and prophesied and incarnate born, living, crucified, risen, ascended. It's all right there. Jesus Christ was the sum and substance, the essence, 
the center stage, if you please, of the apostles' teaching. And the first mark of the new covenant church then was a devotion, not half-hearted attention, but a devotion. They sat under the ministry of Christ-appointed, inspired apostles who taught them the word of God. And so the church in Thessalonica, some 25 or 30 years later, they received the teaching of the apostles not as the teaching of men, but for what it was, the teaching of God, it was a learning church. And I think it's important to note that there is a danger in churches like this that we can so easily become hearers of God's word, but not doers of God's word, that we satisfy ourselves with sitting under the word of God and be a learning church, but we fail oftentimes and it does not norm and form and change us. Now, you'll notice the second thing to which they devoted themselves, and this verb, devoted, qualifies and norms all the other matters of which we read in these verses. They devoted themselves to the fellowship. Now, the word that Luke uses here for fellowship, koinonia, is a rich word. The basic idea, and which many of you will know already, the basic idea of that word is having something in common. Having something in common. Having in common, koinonia. And here in this passage, there are, you'll notice, two sides to the fellowship. Clearly, first of all, they devoted themselves to the body of the saints, to one another. They did not live independent Christian lives. They devoted themselves, that is, they had in common their crucified, risen Savior, the Lord Jesus. They did not live independently of one another, but they devoted themselves to one another in their common faith and in their common life. I think Luke is describing here what the New Testament describes in other ways of the church as the body of Christ. When someone comes to faith in Christ, they are engrafted, as it were, into the body of Christ. They become a limb, a branch, a leg, an arm, a foot, an eye in that body, and they function as they're intended to function in union, a cooperative union with one another. You see, Christians belong together. Families belong together naturally, natively. When you're separated from your family, you feel like you're something like a fish out of water. And if you don't, then there's something very profoundly wrong with that. Families belong together. Families, as a rule, love being together. It is the instinct of your soul. And that's why in verse 46, they treated one another with hospitality. They shared hospitality. And day by day, attending the temple together, we read, and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Hospitality is a wonderful grace. It's a recognition at its heart that we belong together. 
But I say that this fellowship, this commitment to the fellowship, this devotion to it has two sides. Because you'll notice, if you read down through these verses, the devotion was quite specific. Verses 44 and 45. It was a devotion to the poor and needy. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now in this context, there is a verse in 2 Corinthians 9 which is most significant. <clears throat> where Paul speaks of the generosity of the Corinthians. And we learn that that word fellowship translates into generosity, fellowship in sharing and caring for the needy, the poor, the deprived, the broken, the lonely, the outcast, the stranger. Fellowship is all about embracing all whom God has embraced in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is very challenging because we read here that they had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now this is not, as some have erroneously thought, that this is not primitive socialism. In chapter 5 we read of Ananias and Sapphira who made a pretense of something. But surely the point of that passage is that Peter said in essence, look, what you have, you have. There's no compulsion to giving. There's no law that says this is how you ought to do it. This was instinctive generosity on their part to the poor and the needy. And it seems to me what Luke is underscoring here is actually what the law teaches us in Deuteronomy. So often we read the New Testament as if its roots were not deeply embedded in the Old Testament. And in Deuteronomy 15, we find there anticipated, uh, what was anticipated was when God's people lived in faithfulness to his covenant. Deuteronomy 15 and verse 4, but there will be no poor among you. When God's people lived in faithfulness to his covenant, there would be no poor. And I think that what Luke is careful to underscore here is that which is merely set forth later in Deuteronomy chapter 26. That God's people gave their tithes and their offerings for sharing so that the poor and the needy, the widow and the orphan, the outcast and the stranger would have sufficient means on which to live. This devotion to the family fellowship was not simply that they were all present in the services morning and evening and at the times when they met for prayer that's not the point it was taken for granted I think that the commitment was giving themselves to the family to which they now belong and I think that's something that we ought to observe today this is a family this body this church is a family of people who belong to one another. But then thirdly, we're told they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. Now, the actual text reads a little bit differently. It reads the breaking of the bread. 
to be sure, it is the same identical phrase of which we read in chapter 20 and verse 7 of this book, where it most certainly refers to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And I think Calvin was right when he indicated that this is to be understood as referring to the Lord's Supper, one of the ordinary means of grace, the sacraments. And I think he was right, in particular because he says that Luke expresses in this place four marks, four marks whereby the true and natural face of the church may be judged. He says this is what the church looks like, and these are the marks of what the true church looks like. Now, why was this the case? Because Jesus Christ had commanded his church, as we were reminded so vividly this morning, do this in remembrance of me. The church did what it did in obedience to the command of Jesus Christ. It was a sacramental church. Now, you may think, why? Why was it? A sacramental church. Well, in the year 1540, the great reformer wrote a short treatise on the Lord's Supper. His thinking developed and deepened and expanded, I think, over the next 23 years or so until he died. But the heart of his understanding of the Lord's Supper is contained in Calvin's short treatise on the Lord's Supper. And he says, Christ instituted the Supper, and he lays out three reasons. First, in order to sign and seal in our consciences the promises con that are contained in his gospel. His compassionate and considerate, it is compassionate and considerate of the Lord to give us those signs, those visible signs. And our Lord portrays for us in physical, tangible, material elements his grace to us. In Jesus Christ. Secondly, Calvin said, in order to exercise us in recognizing his great goodness towards us, every time the bread is broken, you and I are reminded that our Heavenly Father gave his Son to be broken for me. For me, he was broken. And then thirdly, Calvin said, in order to exhort us all to holiness and innocence, inasmuch as we are members of Jesus Christ, and specially to exhort us to union and brotherly charity as we are expressly commanded. The church is one. But then I want you to notice, last of all, fourthly, and I have curtailed this to quite a quite a bit in order for our service tonight. But notice fourthly, they devoted themselves to the prayers. Not simply to prayer, but to the prayers. Probably the appointed times of prayer in the temple. It was a learning church. It was a loving church. It was a sacramental church. And fourthly, it was a praying church. It was a church devoted to the ordinary means of grace. They devoted themselves to the prayers. They did not regard prayers supplemental, but as fundamental. Prayer was not regarded as peripheral, but central 
in their worship. Now, why was that? And there's a very simple reason why prayer is central to the life of the church. Because you can do more than pray after you've prayed. But you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. John Bunyan. Benjamin Warfield, the great Princeton theologian, was asked one time, what is Calvinism? What is Calvinism? I love his answer. Calvinism, he said, is Christianity on its knees. We are a praying people. In reality, whether one admits it or not, every time one bends the knee to God, he is a Calvinist. And so when the Spirit of God came upon the church, what did it become? It became a church devoted to the ordinary means of grace. They became a devoted people, verse 43, and all fear came upon every soul. The one thing that disturbs me about many churches today is the shallowness, how frivolous churches are. And I don't mean that we should never have fun. But when we come together in the presence of God to offer to him our worship, do we find ourselves struck with awe in the presence of this God? This is the God before whom, according to Isaiah, nations are like a drop from a bucket. All the nations are as nothing before him. And if anything should mark our gatherings, it should be this mark of all. Habakkuk 2 and verse 20. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Yes, he is our father. But he is our father who art in heaven. Hallowed be his name. Hallowed be his name. It was a devoted people and all-filled people. Verse 46, they were a glad and generous-hearted people. You see in verse 47, they were a praising people. So as we see this church, is this what we are as a church? Surely we live now and not then. We will express that differently. We don't live in that culture, that age. We live, you and I, now but these are the principial marks that manifestly define the church of Jesus Christ. Do they define Christ's church of Katy? You see, it was to such a people, notice this in verse 47, it was such a people that the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And we should not, ought not miss that connection. It was to such a people that the Lord was pleased to bless with converts daily. So as we come to a close this evening, let me ask yourself this question. Do we seek the true church of Jesus Christ? Well, the image thereof is lively depainted for us here in this place, in this passage. In the late years of the 7th century B.C., the prophet Jeremiah was raised up by God to declare a word to a tragic people who had turned their back on their God and had conformed themselves to all the nations around them who were living in utter disregard of God's commandments, God's gospel. And Jeremiah 
uttered these words to them in the sixth chapter of his prophecy to a people who were literally hell-bent on destruction. Stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. You think that Jeremiah was exhorting those people to stop living like they were in the 7th century B.C.? and live like Moses and other people lived, say, in the 15th century B.C.? Don't be so silly. He wasn't saying live as if you were in the past. So when God's word says to us tonight, ask for the ancient paths because therein lies the good way, He's not saying live as if you were living back in the 50s, as if there had been no revolution of free love and sexual permissiveness, as if we weren't living in a post-Christian age when people are calling evil good and good evil. Far less is God directing us to return to the Victorian age, to the age of the Puritans or the age of the Reformers. We live here and now, not then. But the ancient paths, the ordained paths, the old paths are simply God's ordained ways, the ordained means of grace of the ways that God has revealed by which he blesses his church. And these means of grace are transdispensational. They are transcultural. They may take a different form depending upon locality. The church today seems all content to abandon tradition as if it's always a bad word. All in the name of the desire to be relevant and engaging with people. But dear people... Be sure of this. Relevance has nothing to do with aping or mimicking the thought forms and the art forms of the world in the church. It's got nothing to do with that. And it's got everything to do with being normed and formed by the living, enduring Word of the living God. God's blessing came on the people who devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. What kind of church are we? Well, may the Lord help us to be a church that is a church. And dear people, we're all far from where we should be. You and I know that. But may we seek together to be a people who can be recognized as a congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray.